Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the 1999 film, written and directed by Lily and Lana Wachowski, The Matrix. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Wawandari Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay respect to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings for this episode. Uh, there will be discussions of mental health, uh, self-harm and suicide, uh, as well as discussions of transphobia and deadnaming. If that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, please feel free to check out one of our other episodes. So, The Matrix. Almost certainly the most modern piece of non-historical fiction we'll ever cover on this podcast, but it was last century, and I have <laughs> <laughs> and I have friends who were born after its release. Hi, That's... Tessa. So I can just about justify its presence here. <laughs> I, I was excited to find out how this was queer and or historical. <laughs> it's definitely media. Yep. It is definitely a film, or is it? <laughs> <laughs> So The Matrix was the third film written by the trans sisters Lily and Lana Wachowski, uh, and the second one that they directed after the heavily rewritten Assassins and the lesbian noir crime thriller Bound. We could get to Bound one day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if people are interested in hearing us talk about that, maybe we could do it on our Patreon, something like that. Yes, yeah. yes. Matrix producer Joel Silver, who would continue to work with the sisters throughout the 2000s, has claimed that Bound was effectively an audition for the two of them to prove their directorial chops in order to get funding for The Matrix. Uh, however, Lily and Lana dismissed that as fiction in a 2015 interview with BuzzFeed, so who's to say? Okay. Um, certainly, they were keen to make The Matrix, and then they made Bound first. The relationship between that. Hollywood is a bit of a mystery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Probably to those in and outside of it. Yeah. I want to stress, particularly for our young listeners, how big of an impact the Matrix films had on popular culture. Not so much aesthetically as I think they're given credit for. After all, Blade came out in 1998. Like, the leather and latex goth club aesthetic was already breaking into mm. the mainstream by that point. It is so palpably evocative of that time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially, we obviously went back and watched the first movie before uh, recording this episode. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, an original sci-fi property taking four Oscars off of Star Wars was a pretty huge game-changer in terms of Hollywood sort of eras. Wait, which Star Wars? What? Star uh, Phantom Wars? Menace. Oh, I mean, yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, but, but that's the thing, right? If, if you'd said to people in 1998 yeah. that an original movie by these two obscure, like, you know, writer-directors was going to take four Oscars off of Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one would have believed you. Yeah. And then they saw Jar Jar Binks. And then they saw Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> <laughs> Should have put him in a black latex outfit. <laughs> I hope we get some fan out of that. I, I, I don't. don't. No. <laughs> yeah, well, if we do, it's your fault. Yeah, it's true, but yeah. it's unnecessary. If you draw a fan out of that, please tag Jason directly on Twitter and not Queer as Fact. <laughs> Protect um, us. I mean, that's not a bad look for Sith Jar Jar, which I'm still... Fairly invested in. 
<laughs> Moving away from Star Wars. The Matrix Reloaded was the highest grossing R-rated film until Deadpool came out in 2016. Mm, that's crazy. Like, it's been more than 20 years. Mm. Matrix memes never really even went away. Mm. They just yeah. became mildly less popular for a while. Yeah, it still gets visually referenced fairly frequently. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, Keanu Reeves basically revived his career by doing the same kind of gun-fu shtick, but without the sci-fi trappings in the John Wick movies. Um, and Bullet Time was so overused that by 2014 they were using it uh, for John Watson's wedding photos in Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs> I do not remember that. Maybe I didn't get that far in Sherlock. Yeah. That's pretty funny. That is a stupid episode and a stupid shot. Yep, it is. <laughs> I haven't even touched on the wider cultural impact yet, which has, unfortunately and through no real fault of the Wachowski sisters, been decidedly mixed. On the positive side, The Matrix will likely go down in history as the first major Hollywood film directed by trans people, which beyond anything else is just very cool, uh, especially in recent years where Lana and Lily have been able to be openly trans and making big budget content. So what else have they been doing since then? I don't know anything about films. Uh, so they made the V for Vendetta movie. Oh, I didn't know they um, did that. Then they made Speed Racer. They made Jupiter Ascending. Yeah. Oh, did they? Yeah, that was a great time. sure did. <laughs> um, and then they did Sense8 for TV. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a few others that I'm forgetting here. Oh, Cloud Atlas as well was another big budget movie. They've made so many things I've heard of that I never realised was them. Yeah, and it's really surprising that they continue to get like, big funding for big projects, given that some of their projects have not been super successful, especially since Viva Vendetta, basically. Mm -hmm. It's the strength um, of the Matrix, baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not only trans people who feel alienated from their peers, a friction with mainstream authorities, and the sense that something is fundamentally broken in the world. And neo-reactionaries were using the term red-pilled at least as early as 2007. But we are in fact here to discuss the red pill as estrogen, not as fascist hogwash or libertarian nonsense. <laughs> Matrix? Like, screenings must just draw such interesting crowds. <laughs> there were a lot of jokes leading up to the release of the new film uh, about like, you know, where did all the men go from the audience? And it's like... <laughs> honey <laughs> but yeah let's get into it we'll be discussing two major things in this episode firstly the aesthetics casting choices and general setting of the film and how they were informed by transness and queer culture in general uh, and secondly the trans interpretation of the first film focusing on Nero's story in particular uh, I'd like to make a note here that I'd originally set aside a third point to talk about the new movie Matrix Resurrections we were able to go and see the film in relative safety and had a pretty mixed reaction to it but ultimately, there's not a lot of new trans content to discuss from it, and so aside from a couple of references, I won't be discussing it. We do make reference to it a few times, so mild spoiler warnings, but I don't think you could really understand what this movie is about by listening to us <laughs> talk about it in this episode. So, uh, yeah, enjoy. Keanu Reeves, who plays Neo, and Carrie Ann Moss, who plays Trinity, are both presented fairly androgynously for large parts of this movie, and particularly in Keanu's case, this represented a significant departure from Western action movie stars of the 80s and 90s, a la Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm -hmm. or Tom Cruise. Except for maybe that one time in Interview with a Vampire. <laughs> <laughs> in an actor profile written around the time The Matrix was released, uh, Keanu Reeves is described as fey-haired, a bit androgynous, and given to acting with his hands. Yeah. Too good-looking by far and not given to dating other movie stars, he was therefore widely assumed to be gay. Mm -hmm. So just, yeah, like this is like the media perception of Keanu at the time. Okay. Really fun time. 
It's a bit like <laughs> Writer Hannah Kuhlman describes Keanu's role in pop culture at the time and Neo's role in the film specifically as follows. As a celebrity, he is appreciated the same way a female starlet would be, for his lovely name, the shape of his cheekbones, and his hairstyle. The Matrix is conscious of Reeve's status and constantly refers to it through dialogue. Cypher asks Trinity to look into Neo's big, beautiful eyes, and the Oracle tells Neo that he's cuter than she had expected, but not too bright. Another nod on the film's part to Reeves' reputation for being dim-witted. <laughs> I'm sorry, Keanu. Yeah, well, that last bit is Kuhlman referencing Keanu's career at the time. The Wachowski sisters were apparently quite sceptical of him in the role, knowing him mostly for the Bill and Ted films. Mm. It is quite a jump. Yeah, and it had been a few years. Like, the Bill and Ted films were 89 and 91. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had done other stuff in the meantime, but I think he was still most famous for them, yeah. for those films. Yeah. So I don't know anything about the Bill and Ted films. What does he play in the Bill and Ted films? Stoner. Yeah, oh, like okay. a, they're like a stoner comedy. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's all you need to know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was enough information. Yeah. yeah. Very different to Matrix. Yeah. Kuhlman continues, Where Trinity steals the role of strong, capable hero from males, Keanu slash Neo easily falls into the role she has left empty. He becomes the girl. For further evidence of Trinity and Neo's gender role switch, one need only consider the multiple comparisons of Neo to young girls from children's stories. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole, Morpheus tells Neo, and minutes later, Cypher tells him, buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. His opening arc is just like a very, like, not quite damsel in distress situation, but he has no idea what's going on, and Trinity just, like, comes in and saves him. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, I feel like, now, a slightly more common arc for male heroes in Hollywood films. Yeah. In that, you know, it's almost become a stereotype, right, of the, like, competent uh, female co-protagonist who is outshone by the male protagonist later in the film. Yeah. But at the time, I feel like that wasn't as common. I feel like it also just sort of feels a bit different in this one, and that, like, I feel, and I know a lot of concrete examples here, but this is my, like, impression of that trope, that a lot of the time that's something that's specifically noted by male heroes in more recent films and something that they don't really like. And so that kind of, like, masculinity is really like present mm. which isn't something that you get from Neo he's not ever like trying to show Trinity up or anything like that yeah absolutely. so like that's nice mm. uh and I guess the other thing I would like to note about what we've talked about so far is that Keanu Reeves is very pretty in this film yeah he really is <laughs> he's so beautiful <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wonder how many of those lines they were like, we need to add more lines pointing out how pretty he is. It's just the elephant in the room. All of that by itself is, as Kuhlman puts it, more for the purposes of style than subversion, and doesn't do much to interrogate the audience's understanding of gender. Similarly, I mentioned the leather and chains aesthetic up front, and this was fairly intrinsically linked with at least Lana's experience of gender and sexuality. She married a professional dominatrix who'd worked extensively with trans people in 2009, and she met her wife in a BDSM club just after the release of the first film. So she was in this scene in a very specifically queer manner. So nice. that's definitely where she would have been pulling this aesthetic from. Yeah, it's not exactly difficult to read this film mm. as being intentionally and visibly queer and trans rather than just like adopting the trappings of a then popular aesthetic. Mm. Mm-hmm. Lily says on the subject... It all came from the same sort of fire I'm talking about. And because trans people exist in this, especially for me and Lana, we were existing in this world where the words didn't exist. She's talking there specifically about the fact they were both in the closet at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
But they both knew they were trans at the time they made this movie. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. They're both fairly private people who haven't oh, talked yeah. a lot about the specific timeline of their yeah. transition, which is totally fair. That's yeah. fair. Of Certainly by the time the third film came out, uh, there were a lot of questions about Lana's appearance on the red carpet. Mm-hmm. And it seems like she had started her transition by that point. Okay. But the Wachowskis intended to go much further with their casting choices and depicting transness in The Matrix. The character of Switch, whose very name is, you know, pretty freaking queer. <laughs> I did wonder about the character of Switch. Was originally intended to be played by, in the words of Lily Wachowski, you know, a man in the real world and then a woman in the Matrix. That's where both our headspaces were. Hmm, might have been cool. I've seen a couple of different explanations for why this didn't happen. One was that it was like a budget thing, which seemed ridiculous to me. Yeah. Um, my understanding is that the studio were unwilling to include it, but the fact that the character who does appear in the film is played by an AFAB person who wears what very much looks like a binder in a couple of different scenes um, and has a pretty androgynous appearance even by this film standards is a clear remnant of this plan. Personally, I suspect Switch's final line, where they say, not like this, before dying in the Matrix, carries some additional weight when you consider the intended presentation of that character. So, what is the implication of that within the world of the film? Like, are we understanding that person to be... What, what is the gender of that character? In which That's... world are they presenting their actual gender? Yeah, or It's are a they really good question. Them? I yeah. don't know. And I'm okay. not sure that really the Wachowskis could even tell you what they yeah. really intended there, yeah, yeah. because they themselves were a bit mixed up. Yeah, their yeah, understanding yeah. of gender at yeah. the time. Yeah, like let's just let's just let's just run a few simulations. <laughs> here. Um, it's just interesting to think about because, like, obviously, you know, this person has like a real body that mm-hmm. exists in a little vat somewhere, mm-hmm. and then they're in this computer simulation. Mm. So, like, and then they would exit that simulation and be in that real body. Mm. And I assume with the trans reading of this film, that would mean that the like body that they're in outside of the matrix is like their real self yeah that would generally fit with the themes of the movie Mm, yeah and it it does kind of make sense with how your kind of residual self-image is described by morpheus 2 neo where he talks about how you have this residual self-image based on what you looked like in the matrix but then it's mm-hmm. like, how how does the Matrix decide what you look like? Yeah. And, you know, the idea of, like, maybe the Matrix makes an error because it's a computer. Like, I, I've seen a lot of discussion about this and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of how that would exactly work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who knows how it would have been presented in the film had they been allowed mm-hmm. to follow through on this. Um, yeah. Although it kind of sounds like they were, weren't planning on really following through on it in terms yeah. of making it an arc. They were just planning on having that be a detail for people to notice and yeah. be like, oh, that's trans. Just have them be like, oh, there's a little gender stuff going on here. Yeah. Um, but some of the statements, well, some of the comments that you made there actually kind of make that make a little bit more sense to me because my uh, sort of question or thought about why this person, like, you know, quote unquote, really being a woman because that turns out to be their body in the real world or whatever mm. didn't work is because of that, like, self-image that, you know, like Neo has an image of what he looks like, which mm. does, you know, apart from like clothing and stuff, look like what he looks like. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, which is clearly his kind of like internal perception of what his own body looks like. And that sounds more like it maps onto a trans 
metaphor a lot better that that like this person would make more sense as a trans man Mm. but like Mm. i like that explanation of like oh it's just a computer glitch like that i think is kind of a fun way of putting transness in there without having to kind of make up some reason why uh like the architect or whatever would just give some people a matrix body that was like wrong just to like mess with them or something you know (laughs) yeah or or the alternative situation where you interpret the character as a trans woman Mm. And say, no, the way that they're choosing to coalesce themselves within Mm. the Matrix is their real form. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I don't think that's necessarily what they're going for, especially given that, you know, the first film especially focuses a lot on the benefits of being outside the Matrix. Yeah. You know, so thematically Mm -hmm. it makes more sense to interpret the character as trans mask instead of trans femme. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, also, like, I I guess there's ways in which you could explore someone being, like, gender fluid or non-binary with that as well. Mm. Um, Like, obviously, it's not like, well, they're trans mask or they're trans femme. There was a binary here. That's the one (laughs) thing I know. Uh, But, like, I don't know if we want to start spitballing about that. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I feel, and this is something that uh, I feel kind of pops up in the fourth film about, like, you know, binary options. And even there's a really funny thing in the first, at the end of the first film, Uh, And this is, like, way too deep in the source. Um, (laughs) But, like, the end of the first film, um, the, like, Matrix text is on the screen. There's an M and an F. And then the camera pans in between the M and the F. And that's, like, the last shot of the film. (laughs) That's wild. I feel like this is a movie that just asks you to, like, just keep going deeper into that source. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, like, um, for example, the the second word that pops up on the screen (laughs) is trans. (laughs) <laughs> oh, is it? When? Yeah, so the the first like signal in that first conversation between Cypher and Trinity, the, and you can't see either of them on screen, it's just yeah. like the text, and it says, call trans opt received. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, that's that's just some little tidbits that are not obviously in any way relevant. <laughs> is that purposeful, or is it just fun in hindsight? Or we just I think like the, to know? I think call trans opt received, I think that's just a line. I don't yeah. think that has any meaning. The camera panning between the N and the F, I think there's something going on there i've seen several interviews where lana wachowski like for example has said like she's not comfortable with the term transition at least at a certain time she was and i don't know about her particular views on that now yeah because it like played into a binary Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so certainly you know at least lana has a very like you know fairly strong opposition to the idea of the gender binary yeah and so i would not be surprised if that specific shot was deliberate yeah to briefly talk about the fourth film, like, I feel like they get more, and which one of them directed the fourth film? It's only one uh, of them. Lana. Yeah. I feel like she gets more and more heavy handed with the, like, points about the binary in that movie. Like, there's several lines when, like, Bugs talks about, like, being offered the two pills. Mm. She's like, I was like, what is this binary decision? This is false. There's not a dichotomy here. <laughs> and, like, the game that Neo is working on when he moves on to working on the final Matrix game is literally called Binary. Yep. They're like, no, you have to stop working on binary and do this thing now. Like, yeah, they're really hammering that home. <laughs> yep. But all of that would not be enough to call the film, as pop culture researcher Eleanor Lockhart calls it, a transition story. Because, you know, all of that is fairly circumstantial. It's fairly, you know, based on aesthetics and little tidbits and like a side character that didn't even get to be presented the way mm. that they intended to present that character. But for that, we turn back to Keanu and to the character of Thomas Anderson, or as he so explicitly states, he prefers to be called 
Neo. So let's break down Neo's arc in this film, highlighting some of the writing and directorial choices in particular to examine them from a trans perspective. Uh, so from the start, Neo is established as living a dual life, one where he is a hacker with an ungendered name, prominent online presence, and a clear disregard for his own personal well-being or appearance. That last point hit me personally pretty hard. It's almost a trans-feminine stereotype at this point that you go from being a slobby or otherwise uncaring about appearance, quote-unquote man, to a woman or a non-binary person who has a very prominent sense of style. Uh, based on interview descriptions and photos from the time of the Wachowskis, I feel like it maybe resonated with them as well. Like, there's a lot of descriptions from people who worked with them of them being very, like, nondescript and trying to stay in the background. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, Lana Wachowski especially is, like, very, very prominent in her sense of style. <laughs> She's worn some incredible dresses on the red carpet for the new movie. Good for her. Anyway, then in his work life, Thomas Anderson is a straight and narrow businessman working in a skyscraper for a mega corporation, wearing a suit that doesn't look very comfortable on him, very clearly kind of cosplaying a persona that he doesn't have any real belief in. Mm. This lifestyle isn't sustainable, both because even in his online life, Neo is being consumed by a question he can't even properly vocalize, and because he's burning himself out trying to live between two worlds. As media writer Chelsea Shepard points out, the general consensus among trans folk and the best test to determine one's transience is that if you keep searching, if the question consumes you, then you're probably trans. Which, you know, if you just replace the word trans with matrix there, it sounds a lot <laughs> like a line of dialogue from the film. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is how, in The Matrix, the rebels find their allies to be awoken. You know, they base it on who is searching for this information, who is, like, trying to find out what's wrong. It's like if the trans agenda was to hack everyone's Google accounts and say, hey, you know, you can just be a girl to every young person with an eggy search history. <laughs> Kuhlman puts it as follows, uh, and apologies for the somewhat extensive quote, but this is just really well written. This is how Morpheus first explains The Matrix to Neo. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now, in this room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Substitute the word gender for the matrix in the first sentence and suddenly morpheus's description is an echo of judith butler's ideas of gender constructedness in their own words gender is what you put on invariably under constraint daily and incessantly when they examine the acts which constitute gender they understand them not only as constituting the identity of the actor but as constituting that identity as a compelling illusion an object of belief there's a line about that little niggle always in the back of your head that mm. i feel is like peak this point you're making yeah absolutely i think it may be somewhere later in my script oh okay well, <laughs> we'll catch up with it then um but yes yeah you're right it's very it, nose. Yeah. yeah and you know like that goes on uh throughout the movie right the idea of rebirth of a literal egg cracking open uh <laughs> was was that a thing back then <laughs> I, I don't know but okay. like certainly obviously there's like a resonance there yeah sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah of the mess and medical procedures and changes in hair and appearance involved in transition. Like, at a certain point, it becomes harder to find an element of Neo's emergence from the Matrix that can't be directly connected to an element of the trans experience than it is to find one that is. <laughs> Certainly all the, like, distressed cardigans really resonated with me. <laughs> what about when they upload jujitsu directly into his brain? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not the trans person in the room, you tell me. <laughs> Alice is cis and she doesn't know about the jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> this is the trans agenda. <laughs> oh. No, that scene where Morpheus is like, hit me if you can, and then Neo's desperately trying to do that is exactly what going to a psychiatrist and being like, just diagnose me with the thing you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> 
And of course, beyond all of that, there's the notorious red pill, which starts the process of removal, which many, many people online have claimed was literally the colour of estrogen pills in the 90s. Uh, I haven't been able to find an interview where either sister directly addresses this specific topic, so I can't speak directly to their intentions here. But in Andrea Longchu's book, Females a Concern, she goes into the details. And then there's the red pill itself, less a metaphor for hormone therapy than a literal hormone. Many have pointed out online that back in the 90s, prescription estrogen was in fact red. The 0.625 milligram Primarin tablets, derived in matrix-like fashion from the urine of pregnant mares, came in smooth, chocolatey maroon. And I've seen a picture of these tablets. Yeah, sure enough, they are red. Looked like the red pill? Uh, not exactly. But it was a red pill? But it was a red pill. The red and the blue pill look like, uh, like there's like fish oil tablets inconsistently. They're not really like... Hmm. Yeah, they're not really like a, like a like medical like, tablet. Obviously stylized. They're yeah. weirdly um, shiny. Yeah, that's what I mean by the fish oil. Thing. Yeah. Like yeah. they're like a capsule and stuff. Maybe so, they maybe they literally are just fish oil tablets that they like food diet. Maybe, yeah. Maybe we can we can do it we can like mm-hmm. see if we can do that <laughs> if if it works. So after all those takes, Keanu just had like really strong levels of omega three or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I I've seen that around many times as well and always been sort of like a li- a little skeptical of it because it's I guess it's possible that there was only one type of estrogen available or that this one was like overwhelmingly the one prescribed to like trans women in north america or something like that but like i just got, sort of assumed that estrogen tablets would have like a variety of appearances yeah, or not so... like i i you know i never looked into it so i'm hoping that you will conveniently give me this information now <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i have seen some comments from people about uh having tablets that were yellow or orange you know so i i think that may be the case mm. and um yeah, as I said, the sisters haven't directly addressed it, yeah. which kind of makes me think that it's just kind of a coincidence. Yeah. You know, obviously there's not that many colours that tablets can be. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of funny that now the most common, I think it's the Estradiol tablet, uh, is blue. <laughs> 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 um, which again, pure coincidence, <laughs> but kind of funny. Yeah. How do they decide what colour to make tablets? I, I have know. no idea. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, I didn't prepare that in advance. I'm sorry, Alex. That's fair. <laughs> so I have a question. Mm-hmm. When I've seen that theory go around, I've seen the other half of it be that the blue pill was the color of a common or prominent antidepressant at the time. Is that the version of this rumor that you also saw? And have you been able to substantiate that at all? Uh, no, I actually didn't look into that because okay. um, it wasn't in the comments that I saw. Mm. Um, because I, I, I was kind of, a lot of this episode script has come from things I've learned over like, you know, many years on the internet and sort of half remembered and then had to go and like look up properly. Yeah. Um, so my research has probably been a bit more like targeted than it would be for other episodes. Mm. So in this case, I was specifically looking up like red pill estrogen matrix question mark. <laughs> <laughs> At um, which point, if we were in that version of reality that you mentioned earlier, you would have gotten a pop-up being like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, that's fine. Uh, it's, again, like, I never looked into this and I kind of, it, it's one of the many internet rumors that I vaguely intended to, like, I don't know, look up on Snopes one day or whatever. <laughs> uh, but it always sort of bothered me as an analogy, whether it's one in the film or if it's just one that fans make, because... Obviously, like people have a lot of different experiences with 
uh, antidepressants and with treatments for depression in general and obviously transition and being a like repressed trans person throws another layer into that but it always seemed like a very like dubious discussion of mental health that was evoked by that kind of reading yeah uh, and mm. certainly the fourth movie doesn't do a lot to dissuade one from that take yeah so i i guess like part of the reason why i asked is because I guess I'll include, like, a small spoiler for the fourth movie, though we won't, like, go down this whole rabbit hole and discuss <laughs> the, the movie in any depth, is that Neo, like, explicitly in The Matrix for mental illness, is taking medication, which is the blue pills, which the film treats as kind of, like, to be very reductive in pursuit of only talking about this briefly, as, like, a bad thing for him to be doing. And it, like, reminded me of that internet rumor and... I don't feel dealt with mental illness very well. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a pretty common thing in Hollywood, right? Both dealing with mental illness poorly generally, but yeah. also specifically the thing of somewhat demonizing medication and mm. psychiatry. Mm. And I think, you know, often it kind of, I feel, comes from people's individual experiences. Mm. And specifically, I, I would probably imagine that if you're someone who's in the kind of Hollywood environment compared to someone, you know, in a normal, particularly a normal working class environment, you're much more likely in the former to be like over-prescribed and over-medicated, that aspect of problematic mental health treatment versus the other side of it where you're like not being able to access treatment, not being Mm. able to access medication. And Mm. yeah, so I think it does lead to problematic depictions of mental health and mental health treatment in Hollywood movies that don't resonate with, audiences sometimes because it's like well this isn't this is like the complete opposite of the experience that i've had yeah yeah it's definitely a very complicated discussion we could get into but i think we'll just sort of leave that at that and maybe just briefly mention that if you are interested in seeing the fourth film and uh depictions of like mental illness and gaslighting around mental illness uh and suicidality and suicide attempts is something that might be difficult for you i would frankly potentially avoid seeing this movie or maybe like watch it in your own home when you have the time to pause it and like take a break because uh there are some pretty rough scenes and yeah. it's quite protracted yeah i would mm. i would certainly second yeah. So yeah, beyond the kind of exit of Neo from the Matrix and kind of, you know, those couple of aesthetic points like the red pill that we've talked about, the conflicts in this movie also map onto a trans experience with relatively little mental effort, as Lockhart points out. This starts with the Matrix itself, which Morpheus introduces to Neo with the following line that uh, Eli mentioned earlier. I was about to call you Neo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, the line is... What you know, you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. Yes. That's such a good line. It describes uh, gender dysphoria and also late-stage capitalism. True. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, this movie is really about both of these things. This is what I feel in my mind every time our Prime Minister says something else about the coronavirus. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. (sighs) You know, after this, we then proceed to have the kind of bureaucratic insistence on an identity that isn't Mm. yours, uh, with the absolute gut punch of a line, one of these lives has a future, and one of them does not, Mm. Um, from Smith to Neo in that, like, first interrogation scene, after he's explicitly laid out, you know, Thomas Anderson has a future, Neo does not, and it's like, oof. Yeah. And, you know, then we have this, like, insistence from Neo that, like, 
I know my rights um, and his like kind of reliance on the legal framework of like, give me my phone call. And that like literally melts away as Neo comes to realize that the law only applies equally to those who fit into acceptable societal roles. I hate that scene where his mouth disappears. It like holds up pretty well effects wise. <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. this like whole film does really. Yeah, 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 true. I think there were a couple of individual moments, like yeah. when Smith explodes. Yeah, when Smith explodes, I think yeah. it doesn't hold up. Pretty much everything else holds up. That really looked like one of those like made for 3D moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm so glad they never did a pointedly 3D Matrix movie. Mm-hmm. That would be bad. It would. And you could see why they might have thought yeah. it was a good idea. As I alluded to earlier, the prominence of what can be fairly accurately described as dead naming by Smith in the narrative, and in particular during the subway fight, is like a very prominent, like a very obvious way in which you can compare the conflict mm. in this movie to a trans narrative. Mm. I was going to bring that up, and I was like, obviously Jason will do this, so I'll just <laughs> shut up. <laughs> And this carries additional significance as an empty subway platform was the site where Lana Wachowski almost jumped in front of a train during her youth. Mm. So, you know, My Name is Neo being perhaps the iconic, like, beat of the entire film, that's not an accident, right? Yeah. That scene in particular, once you sort of, as soon as you start to think about this movie, the trans movie, that scene Mm. really very much comes to mind. Mm. Mm. And I think it, uh, like, also just sort of benefits the viewer to think about it in that way because I think it makes it just a much more emotionally deeply felt thing for Smith to constantly be calling out Mr. Anderson. Mm. You know, it it really brings it into focus as this moment of uh, attempted control and dehumanization and it's really good. Yeah. Hugo Weaving's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I think something that Eleanor Locker points out is that like specifically the thing where he has this big triumphant moment of my name is Neo, mm. and he, like, kind of, you know, throws him in front of a train, like, yeah. literally throws transphobia in front of a train instead of himself. She talks about how, yeah, but, you know, then you have to deal with the reality of daily life being trans, and, you know, transphobia gets right back up and mm. will continue to misgender and dead name you. Mm, so does Smith. Yeah, and so does mm. Smith. <laughs> and it's just like, oof, yeah, okay, that sucks. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of this movie and the point that i'm about to get into which is probably the most esoteric (laughs) comparisons uh a lot of what the second and third and even fourth movies kind of reckon with is the idea of like okay you get out of the matrix then what Mm. like how do you live your life after that point you know it's it's not just a case of the fight doesn't end as soon as you realize that you're trans or realize that the matrix Mm. (laughs) isn't real Mm you know, you then have to construct a life. So, yeah, the last point I wanted to bring up here is that, like, even the betrayal of Cypher in the movie can be compared to a detransition, like someone who cannot face the sheer seeming hopelessness of life being persecuted by the system and who, instead of attempting to tear it down, would rather be placed in a place of privilege within it. Okay. This one's obviously, as I said, a bit more esoteric. But yeah, this is the one place I wanted to specifically bring up the new movie, uh, so a mild spoiler warning for Matrix Resurrections, because I think that movie calls back to Cypher's dismay at life outside the Matrix with a lot more sympathy than the original movie did, which obviously, like, he's just kind of a fairly uncomplicated villain in that movie. Mm-hmm. With the scenes that establish that the new city of Io is much more pleasant than its predecessor in Zion, you know, one of many pretty explicit allusions to how life, although filled with horrors old and new and still precarious in many ways has seen improvements for those who escape the Matrix, and indeed for trans people. You know, it might not be a rare steak, but strawberries are pretty good, eh? (laughs) 
And I think that's a lot of this movie, and I've seen a few takes on this, you know, a lot of this movie is just an older millennial slash younger Gen X person who's kind of lived through the Obama era and, like, things seemingly getting better and then having to deal with and reckon with 2016 and mm. the follow-up to that and the kind of seeming backslide and being like, no, no, like, some of the progress is still here and it is important. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty good take on what The Matrix 4 is about, to be honest. Like, yeah. a lot of it is just like, no, like, Neo explicitly, oh, I guess I am talking a bit more about Matrix Resurrection. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Neo pretty explicitly is like, nothing that I did mattered, as mm, it turned out. Yeah. And then they're like, no, it did. Like, you know, you made a huge impact and there was a lot of change, just that not everything changed. Mm. And it didn't all immediately fix itself. Yeah. I feel like it's like a pretty rough portrayal of detransition. And if that was something that was going to be like explicitly explored in a future film, I would hope that it would be with a character who is less of a like mustache twirling villain. Because <laughs> I think yeah. that, you know, like sometimes trans people do talk about people who do transition in that way. Mm. And sometimes mm. people who do transition talk about trans people in very negative ways. Mm. But like, you know, ideally no. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And- and obviously, for any trans people in our audience, you would already know this, but like a lot of detransitioners are not detransitioning because they hate trans people. Mm. They're doing it because of their own safety. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, most people who do transition don't get to be really rich and have steak all of a sudden. It's just sort of back to being Thomas Anderson, but, you know, probably Thomas Anderson won't get killed tomorrow. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think that's, you know, kind of part of the thing, like part of the undercurrent of that arc, right, is that like, we all know that Cypher's not going to get to go and eat steak. Like, mm. why would why would the agents hold up their end of the bargain? Mm. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, a lot of conflict in the movie that can be fairly easily mapped onto a trans experience. There's a lot of specific things about the way that Neo escapes the Matrix that can be mapped onto a trans experience. And there's a lot of aesthetic and otherwise tiny little nods to trans people and their community throughout this first film how do you guys feel about that i think what i'm wondering is like how much and i don't want to say that it would discredit you know the trans interpretation of the film if the directors did not intend this but i'm wondering like how much have lana and lily been asked or talked about this Mm. in interviews what do they have to say about it yeah i mean obviously there's a lot going on in the matrix once you take into account the sequels the animated film the video games like, does the Merovingian's cake orgasm scene in Matrix Reloaded map neatly onto a narrative of gender transition? Of course not. No, it's <laughs> the most nonsense thing. <laughs> there are many... Where we can make this work? We can make this work. <laughs> <laughs> we can, but should we? <laughs> um, you know, there are many, many ways to interpret Nero's character and the themes of the film, which is why the Wikipedia article for the first movie has 180 references and stretches to almost 10,000 words. Yeah. I see. <laughs> but certainly now that both sisters are out, their intentions in making these movies have become relatively clear. And this is where I, I'm going to actually answer your question. <laughs> I figured um, Lily has said in a 2020 interview with The Independent that The Matrix was all about the desire for transformation, but it was all coming from a closeted point of view. <laughs> and that she and her sister's original intention was for the film to operate as an allegory for gender identity. I'm glad that it has gotten out that that was the original intention, she told Netflix Film Club. The world wasn't quite ready for it. The corporate world wasn't quite ready for it. It is kind of like, you know, it's a bad reflection on society that, like, the world wasn't ready for it. But it is kind of cool that they could make this film and then just come out years later and be like, yeah, that's obviously about being trans. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, it totally is. <laughs> <laughs> and it managed to, like, become a very popular film. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, when researching this episode, I read several pieces from trans people whose understanding of themselves was shaped by this movie. Uh, that wasn't the case for me, but I do think once you account for what I think is a pretty clear allegory for the trans experience, stated authorial intent, and the way it's been interpreted by trans audiences, that The Matrix can be considered a trans film, <laughs> and one which has a pretty well-developed and nuanced understanding of gender transition at that, when at least when mm. compared to major Hollywood productions that have tried to handle trans gender experiences. Are there a lot of trans people from the 90s called Neo? <laughs> that's a good question uh if we have any uh uh audience members who were in the trans community in the late 90s and early 2000s please please tell me yeah <laughs> so with that we've been queer as fiction i'm jason i'm alice and i'm eli and if you've enjoyed this episode you can check out queer as fact on spotify podbean apple podcasts or wherever good podcasts are found you can also follow us on social media we are on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. If you'd like to support this podcast financially, we have a Redbubble store where you can purchase merchandise such as Queer as Fact shirts and mugs, and a Patreon where you can enjoy perks such as voting on episode topics and access to our monthly newsletter. All of this information can be found on our website, queerasfact.com, alongside source posts if you'd like to read more about our episode topics. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.